they're saying is um, he's down to earth. Well, Christ isn't saying that his followers are to be down to earth. So what does being salt to earth mean? What does it do? I think last night and this morning, we saw one thing that salt does, right? It melts ice and snow. It melts ice and snow. <clears throat> it does more than that. It whitens teeth. It flavors our food. But I really believe that none of these three things that we use salt for was the purpose of salt back in Jesus Christ's time. If you think about the climate there in the Middle East, it was hot. It was hot. They didn't have refrigeration. Salt was used to preserve meat, to preserve fish. And secondly, it was used to purifying to clean things. Salt was a preservative. It was a purifier more than a seasoning. Jesus stresses that we as believers are to be the preserving and purifying influences in our culture and society today. When the church is true to itself, when we are who we should be, the world around us will be decaying like rotten fish or meat. But the church, because of our influence, can deter that decay. In other words, followers of Jesus Christ can hold back corruption. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying we're to be different. We're, we're to influence those around us. We're not supposed to be like those around us. We're to preserve or to purify. But if we become contaminated, we can no longer be that salt. So what does it mean to be salt? I didn't go back to the, those uh, character traits we saw in the Beatitudes earlier there. Do you, do you and do I realize my need for God? Do I recognize I'm spiritually bankrupt before God? Do I mourn over my sin and the sin of those around me? Are we meek, gentle in spirit, humble, sensitive, patient? Are you a peacemaker? Are you merciful and compassionate to those in need? I could go on and on, but you get the picture. But if our lives are the opposite, if we're prideful, if we're unfazed by our sin and the sin of those around us and the suffering, if we love to fight and harbor bitterness, then we're not salt. The only way for us to influence the world is to be different. When verses 14 through 16, Christ gives us that second image that we as believers, followers of Jesus Christ are. The light of the world. Light of the world. Verse 14 says, you are the light of the world. And we know that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. But he says that we are the light of the world. Have you ever flown in at night to a city on a, on a, 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 a mountain and see the, the this the, the why? There's no way you can avoid it. It's there. God is saying that as believers, that we are like a city on a mountain. You can't miss it. 
were visible. In addition to being like a city on a hilltop, Christians are like that ancient household lamp. And Christ says in verse 15, he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The point is unmistakable. The primary function of a household lamp and that of a believer is to provide light. Light reveals things that they really are. Now, Chris and I have our bedroom downstairs, and I can pull up some pants and a shirt or a sweater or whatever, and it's dark down in the basement, don't have real good light, and I go upstairs where I've got double glass doors in the kitchen, and those clothes that I thought match, they don't match. You see, light reveals things as they really are. Light reveals things as they really are. Light promotes life. Light awakens us, right? Light. But Jesus Christ is our model. He didn't make things darker. He didn't make darkness darker. But when he came, there was something about him and his life that people began to see their sin. And they were drawn to him in the midst of his life. Verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God has placed you and me in strategic places, just where we are. He calls us to shine. Be honest with us, sometimes in the midst of hardship, in the midst of, of, of rough things going on, we want to move. But it's in the midst of those difficult times that God wants us to be that light, to shine in the midst of it. He says that, that our good works will bring glory to our Father in heaven. And, and good work carries with it that idea of attractiveness, of, of beauty. And Jesus wants our light to shine the beautiful, attractive works in our lives. And it's not the things that we don't do. We've all heard the thing, you know, don't cuss, don't drink, don't cheat. And, and, and we shouldn't, you know, um, cheat or, or cuss or get drunk. But, but this is a reference more to positive things. It's living out. It's living out the Beatitudes. It's being merciful. It's being a peacemaker. It's being gentle. It's being pure in our relationships with one another. And the result? God gets glory. God gets glory. You see, there's that fundamental difference between the world and the church between Christians and non-Christians. It's as different as day and night or as light from darkness, as salt from decay and corruption and disease. John Scott says that the Sermon on the Mount is built on the assumption that Christians are different. Christians are different. And it issues a call for us to be different. He goes on 
He says probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its history has been its constant tendency to conform. Constant tendency to conform to the culture around it instead of being a counterculture effect. You see, a, a Christian's character, the Beatitudes, and its influence, that salt and that light, they naturally go together, don't they? Our influence depends on our character. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we're to be different. We're to be transformed by the Spirit of God as He uses the Word of God and the people of God to change us. In verses 17 through 20, we see the centrality of the Word of God in our lives as we practice our faith and as we reach out and disciple and mentor others around us. Verse 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. First we see here, as we teach, we need to understand that Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets, which is really the Old Testament. Most Christians are not familiar with it. I know churches, I don't think they ever teach from the Old Testament. They might sometimes go to uh, the Psalms, or they might go to Genesis if they want to deal with creation. But they don't deal with it. And in history, there have been some, some theologians who were way off, and they kind of just threw away the Old Testament. That's not what we're called to do. And I, and I hope you've noticed that as we do our preaching series, we, we always try to, to have that balance. And, and, and we would probably move a little more toward the New Testament, but we try to do Old Testament and New Testament. Coming up after this series, we're going back into the Old Testament because the Old Testament is very, very important. Was the thing about Jesus Christ, and if he lived and if he was confronted by the, the Pharisees and the scribes, he had no desire to follow their meticulous legal uh, rituals. He healed on the Sabbath, and they hated it. His disciples ate grain that was gathered on the Sabbath. And Jesus and his disciples didn't follow the, that ritual of hand washing that the Pharisees followed. Far from abolishing the law, though, Jesus Christ came to fulfill it. The, the, the whole Old Testament points toward Jesus Christ. Think back to our study in, in Hebrews. Well, what was it? Jesus Christ is greater than. He's greater than. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses, who was lifted up among the Jewish people. He, he was greater than Joshua, who took him into the promised land. He was greater than Aaron and all the Levite priests. He was greater than the bulls and the goats. Jesus Christ was greater. Amen. But we need to know that. We need to know that. Because Christ corrected the perversion of the scriptures done by the scribes and Pharisees, they thought he wanted to do away with the Old Testament. But Christ came to fulfill the Old Testament. But he didn't come to make it exactly the same. He fulfilled the the law by dying on the cross and satisfying the demands of the law for those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. And because Christ has come, things are different. Example, 
sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices, do we? Remember one time Chris and I were talking, reaching out to a Jewish guy who was a coach for one of our sons, and she asked that question, well, what about your sacrifices? Because they don't count Christ as a sacrifice. And he couldn't answer. Hebrews 10, I, I just love this passage. It is, impo- it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, this, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time one single sacrifice for sin, what did he do? He sat down. The Old Testament priest every day offering sacrifices day in and day out, which did not work. Didn't forget that. They all looked toward Christ and his sacrifice. But yet Christ offered once himself and sat down. Well, secondly, if we look at the Word of God, we can trust Scripture. Jesus taught that the word of God will be accomplished. We're to teach that it is infallible, that it is inerrant. We can, we can vouch for it. In the midst of a culture who looks down oftentimes on the word, verse 18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. That's powerful. That's powerful. I remember the old King James Version says that not one jot or one tittle, that tittle, and this would be looking at the original language, but that, if you can imagine like in the English, picture a C, not picture a G. A little bit different, right? Picture an O, picture a Q. Very close, right? Major difference. And God said, not even one of those jots or tittles will go away. God's word will last. It is trustworthy. The scripture says, and Jesus rather says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We have a foundation of scripture to hang on to. Chris and I and the, and the guys in Judea sometimes watch a series, I think it's on Netflix, called Dr. Blake. And Dr. Blake is like a coroner or a police surgeon. He lost his daughter and, and his wife and um, the situation seemingly. And, um, He's angry at God. He's always making these comments. And one time, he was in this chapel, and he went and stood before the altar, and he was talking to God. And he was telling God how it is. And as I saw him there, I just thought, there's this man who lacks so much for what God has, and he was pointing his finger and he's basically telling God and telling those who watch, you don't exist, God. You don't exist. 
It's easy, isn't it, in the midst of life to follow what Scripture says, begin to, to doubt that God's Word is true, but it is. It will last. Which affects our faith as we teach, as we disciple. Christ gives us a strong warning in verse 19. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them, or does them rather, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. Warning here is very strong. Don't teach God's word incorrectly. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. You and I need to know God's Word. We'll be held accountable for how we teach and how we live. The Pharisees, as they lived there in the midst of Christ, they, they had gone through this torturous process to reduce the challenge of God's Word because the law cannot be fulfilled. No one, there's no man except for Jesus Christ could ever fulfill the law. And so what did, what did the Pharisees and scribes do? They began to change in all the commandments of God. They began to, to try to um, make it more manageable, the, the less demanding on their lives, more um, able to accomplish. The command to love your neighbor was limited just to those Jews close by. They restricted adultery and murder and other things to the act alone rather than our thoughts things. The scribes and Pharisees weren't content to limit the command. They gave additional reasons for divorce. Of course, the sole uh, reason for divorce for, um, was for adultery and decency, but they added to it. <laughs> Pretty much they added the realm of any husband could get a divorce for whatever he wanted. They also expanded permission for retribution, for getting even, for personal revenge. You see how the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they added to and they took away from God's word. We be careful. As we teach, we need to teach both the Old and the New Testament, as I said earlier. Tremendously important. The law instructs us in the righteousness of God. And it's through it that we see his, how high His holiness is, how high His standards are, and how we cannot meet them. How we fall so short and desperately need the grace of God. You see, the law shows us it's impossible in human flesh. Christ, in verse 20, He says that He demands a, a righteousness far greater than that of the Pharisees. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you will, imagine yourself sitting there as Christ is on that hilltop, or rather on the hill, talking mountaintop, and, and, and Christ says that in order to get into heaven, that your righteousness has got to be greater than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most religious. They were the ones who knew the laws, and they had all these laws and all these things. And 
the mindset of people had to be, if they can't get into heaven, who can? Who can? You see, the righteousness of the Pharisees was an outward and showy thing based on rule-keeping. And their rules were attempts to reduce the law's um, demand. They looked for loopholes. Their hearts were unchanged. If there's someone here today who trusted Christ, who's born again this past week, their righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees because our righteousness in Christ is His righteousness. His righteousness. Christ was explaining to these people the impossibility of salvation apart from His grace. It takes us back to the attitudes in that first one there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or some translations, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt and know it. Blessed are those who realize they can't make it on their own. In Philippians 3, 9, the Apostle Paul says, To be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith, in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That is our righteousness. If we're in Christ, if we have been born again, have put our faith and trust in Christ, our righteousness is that of Jesus Christ. Has your heart been changed by Jesus? Have you been born again? Do you know Christ personally? Is your righteousness like that of the Pharisees, outward and showy? Or are you seeking to please God by faith? Well, our desire is that good news is to see everyone at Good News disciples transformed by the gospel on mission. In other words, doing God's work and being connected to the body of Christ here. Verses 21 through 26, Jesus begins a, um, a process of looking at six different things, like he looks at adultery, he looks at murder. We're only going to look at the first one, which he deals with, with murder. But he begins by saying, you have heard it said in the past, and then he quotes the oral tradition of the Pharisees, sometimes the commandment, but it's usually a mixture. Then he said, but I say to you, so he shows us what the Pharisees had, their old tradition, and he says, but I say, we see the contrast. And again, he says, looking at the first one, murder, he said, you heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The Pharisees thought that the commandment, do not murder, was easy. They're righteous. And Christ says, not so fast. Not so fast. 
You see, Christ wanted his followers back then and now to understand that what the law really implies, which is far beyond what the Pharisees' um, safe interpretations were. In this passage, Christ shows us that when the law says, Thou shalt not kill, it means far more than just the act of murder. Christ is telling us what a greater righteousness looks like. Instead of a list of commandments, Christ looks at the spirit of the law. We don't get off if we just keep from killing somebody. In other words, if, if I don't stick the knife in someone's back, but I'm angry, I'm still guilty of the spirit of murder. We're not allowed to simply refrain from doing those things and continuing to, to harbor contempt and rage in our hearts. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He goes for the heart. He goes for our affections. He goes for our attitudes. It's not that, it's not just my murder that's against the law. It's not that murder and anger are the same thing. It's that murder is a result of anger. And anger is at the heart of murder. It's not the same, but it's the same heart. Grant Osborne says that anger is murder in the mind. Murder in the mind. We murder, why? Because we desire to damage and to hurt and to destroy. But it's not enough, guys, ladies, to keep from jagging that knife in somebody's back. That's not good enough. We have to put away that wanting to. To put away that wanting to. Those silly words. The, the NIV is a little bit um, different from the, the ESV, and it says that anyone who says to his brother, sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And, and, and raka is, uh, is a word that insults one's intelligence. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of words that theologians have used and shown that are similar. Empty-headed? Ever called anybody an idiot? Or an imbecile? Or a numbskull? Or a blockhead? Or a bonehead? Fool expresses that contempt for one's heart and character. They're similar, maybe like you scoundrel. These are spiteful words. They're tax words. They are words of anger, abusive. They're pointing out someone's foolishness. Does this scare you? It scares me. Who hasn't been angry? Who hasn't insulted someone? Jesus is saying that we're all guilty before God for a heart that lashes out in anger and hatred. And as a kid, I'm sure that most of us probably heard that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's a big lie. 
It's a huge lie. I promise you it's a huge lie. See, right now, there's some of us here that are plagued by what was said to us when we're children. Struggling today, even though we're adults, from what your father called you or what your mom said to you. You're plagued. Your confidence is destroyed. And some of you may be struggling with, with words that your siblings called you. I think I've mentioned to you before, there were six boys in my family, and I was different from the rest of them. And they called me names. It took me a long, long time, simply because I loved to study. I loved being with people, and they were very fine with just being at the house. They're great people. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But you see, I, I, I'm pointing out that for me, those words that were said to me as a little boy, six, seven, eight, ten years old, they were like venom. They were like acid thrown at me. It hurt. And even though we made no in our heart and mind that they're wrong, they still They still hurt. They still cause us to doubt. You see, anger and that 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 vile venom it inspires it, it it kills the spirit and those who spew acid on others are not free from judgment the god who condemns murder also condemns angry insults and put down christ gives us two examples of what this looks like, or may look like. Verse 22, 23, 23, 24 maybe. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer the gift. This first example, we're told to not wait for a convenient time, be reconciled. Go to your brother, go to your sister now. It's really easy to keep putting it off. Last night, Jerry and I were watching Dr. Blake. And we kept making excuses for not shoveling the snow. Okay? Pretty soon, Jerry came back in because people had to get it off. He said, it's really hard shoveling that snow because the people walked on it. Yeah. It's easy to put off some easy things like shoveling snow. It's really easy to put off things like going and being reconciled to your brother or sister in Christ. And this pastor says, it's urgent. Don't wait. Don't put it off. That's more important. And then again, second point, a second um, example, same point. I think maybe this one, this one dealing with non-believers. Verse 25 says, come to terms quickly with your accuser 
while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and the guard will put you in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out of there until you pay the last penny. Main point of both these stories, resolve conflict. Resolve conflict with a sense of urgency. We're not to sell for not just killing them. That's not good enough. We cannot harbor anger and bitterness and hate in our hearts. And the solution is not repression or, you know, just holding it in. That's not the answer. It's reconciliation. It's not anger management. It's doing your part to resolve the conflict. Settle that conflict quickly. For believers and non-believers. And this is a reminder here. We don't control how the other person will respond. Sometimes reconciliation isn't possible. Because they don't want to be reconciled. But you and I want to make every effort that we are trying. There's so much here. Jesus demands that we are to be different. Change is a must. Let's not be lazy. Let's be that salt and light. Not enough just to say that we are believers. We're not saved by works, but works show that we're believers. God has placed you where you are at work, in your neighborhood, in your home. He's placed you there strategically. And he's calling on you today to be that salt of the earth, that light of the world. It's easy to want to leave. He's got you there. Second thing I think about is how do we reach this community? I want us to start thinking. How do we reach this community? God has strategically placed us right here. Right here. One of the great things as we've been going through, Carrie and I, this listening tour, we've, we've heard from so many people who have different ideas. One person said, oh, we should do a community garden. Another said, a community center. Another said, we, we need a medical clinic, a counseling center, others, daycare centers, and on down the line. Another thing we kept hearing is, our friends think the church is closed. They think the church is closed. They, they say, there are no signs. That brown plexiglass makes it look like no one is here. The doors aren't very inviting. I want to say up front, this has not been your teacher's fault. We've talked. We've talked in our elder meetings. We've talked in the CC. There are problems with having buildings like this, but we need to come together along with the Spanish congregation to come up with ways to make our properties more inviting. It's hard. It's difficult.
Are you involved in someone's life? Are you mentoring or discipling someone? Are you using God's Word? If you're not using God's Word, He's not speaking His God's Word into their lives, and pretty much a waste of time. Because God's Word will last. Fourth, instead of being conformed to our culture, we need to be a counter to it. We need to be that preservative and that light. I think of abortion. Abortion occurs because people think that unborn human is worthless. Euthanasia occurs for the ill and for the elderly because in our culture, they don't count. They're not important. Murders among gangs? It's okay, because and I've heard and talked with guys whom I know and love, and they'll tell you, those other gang guys, they don't, they don't count. Neglect of the hungry, the homeless, the chronically poor, same thing. Finally, I want to still I want you to think about anger. We, we, we talk about being connected, right? We talk about community. Now let's be honest. Most of us, I won't say everybody, most of us struggle with dealing with anger. Am I, am I right? Have a hand raised? Agree? Most of us, most, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see, anger is a secondary emotion. Usually, we get hurt. We get hurt. We don't have to deal with it. Anger. Is our defense. Anger is our defense. We turn to that instead of working through the issues. There are a lot of hurting people here. We don't know how to deal with hurt. We've all been hurt in different ways. I know I've hurt people and I know people have hurt me. Think about your life, looking over it. The sad thing is, is when we're hurt, what do we do? We withdraw. Withdraw from those people that we love and need the most. Withdraw. We need each other. Is there a brother or sister with whom you need to seek? Reconciliation? Is there a non-believer with whom you need to settle in conflict? Do your part. I've reached out before in the past and, and, and I've seen things resolved. Occasionally I've worked, I reached out and there's no reconciliation. But we must try. So conflicts quickly, urgently. Well, let's pray.
Now, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's powerful, that it's alive. Father, that it cuts to the very core of our being. And Father, as we trust you, as we allow your word in our lives, you change us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the body of Christ here. We thank you, Father, that you place us where we can be supported and encouraged and, and at times challenged to grow. Father, help us to be that salt and light in this community. Father, we ask that you would help us to put together our minds and our thoughts and how we can make this church building with all the, the things that need to be done. Father, help us to come up with ways. Oh, Father, help us to be that salt and light in the community. Father, may your word always be solid in our lives, a solid foundation. And Father, for those who've been hurt, or maybe who have hurt someone else, we pray, Father, for reconciliation. Oh, Father, help us to see the urgency of it all. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.